Thanks for joining this podcast for the BJSM community. And I'm delighted to be with Phil Glasgow. And we're at the Irish Physiotherapy Conference in Wexford. And Phil was the chief physiotherapist for the GB team at the Rio Olympic Games. That was his third Olympic Games. And he also has a big role in the UK Physios in Sport group, the ACP SEM. Phil, thanks for joining the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Karim. Really glad to be here to, to chat with you. So we're going to talk about a case of a patient with hip pain, a football player with hip and groin pain. And fill in the scenario for us and tell us how you approach that in the first instance. Yeah, I think we all recognise that hip and groin pain is really common in in footballers, and uh, I, th- I think one uh, athlete in particular who you know he he turns up typical person. He's been struggling for a period of time. Things have gotten progressively worse, but they, people continue to play on with with groin pain uh, over a period of time. Watch this sort of slow decrement. Um, and what did he complain of specifically? Yep. So. Pain, you know, normal in his adductor region, particularly whenever he tried to accelerate. Pain following uh, activity, pain that warmed up over a period of time. But I think as well, one of the, the key things that we observed, which was probably the key factor about uh, you know, why he came to consult, was that he had lost that top end speed. And this is a, a really common finding that we see. These guys, that's one of the things when they see a performance decrement, that's what brings them in, as opposed to muddling through having to play with pain. And tell us about your assessment, Phil. Yeah, I, I think uh, it's really important to obviously do our general assessment and to recognise that the hip and groin is a really complex region with with multiple clinical entities, I suppose, as as we would consider the different causes underpinning that. And and so obviously looking at the hip, uh, looking at the the pubic symphysis, looking at maybe abdominal related or or psoas related, I think of this guy in particular, there was certainly some symphysial involvement, but it was primarily an adductor uh, tendinopathy. The, The one thing that in this guy that, that I think is quite common is that there's often coexistent pathologies present. So let's go through those coexisting pathologies and begin with what made you think that it was adductor tendinopathy mainly? Yeah, I think uh, the, the, the site and location of, of pain is obviously is, is an obvious one, but then the, the idea of then stressing through uh, you know, hip adduction, be that on a squeeze test, a straight leg and bent bent knee as well, uh, having reproducing his pain in the, that focal area, um, pain on palpation of the the adductor longus itself, right up and through to the tendon. That that, that adductor tubercle is always a tender place to, to palpate anyway. So I don't normally put a huge amount of stock by tenderness and palpation unless he says yes, that's my pain. Um, again, I, there was some involvement of symphysial work, and and that's not uncommon for the symphysis to be irritated by resisted adduction. Uh, and to be painful on palpation also. And as part of your workup before you get into treatment, how do you assess the psoas and the inguinal region? Yeah, so uh, the psoas and inguinal region, again, complex area. I think the location of the symptoms and the anterior part of the hip for, for psoas, I think local palpation of the psoas, uh, I think we're, we're, many of us are familiar and there's lots of good resources with the likes of Perholmlicks describing palpation of, of the psoas tendon itself, resisted hip flexion and in different parts of range as well. And, and often then the, the history and the signs and symptoms of location, how it warms up and, and it really wasn't consistent with what you would have expected in the location 
in the behaviour of an adductor tendinopathy. The inguinal region, uh, again, that lower abdominal and, and various discussions over time about sportsmen's hernias and groins and so forth. Uh, but again, lo local uh, palpation of the area, looking at resistive tests, palpation of the, the superficial inguinal ring uh, as well and then that tenderness. How specific those tests are, we, we know is still questionable. However, I think it helps us build a clinical picture with the athlete to identify you know, what are, where's our highest index of suspicion uh, and where we're going to focus our intervention in the first instance. So summarise what you found in that assessment really briefly before you move us into treatment. Yes, yeah, so um, uh, assessed also, uh, doing the assessment of other things, the hip joint, really important. And, and it's really un un not uncommon to see guys who have a reduced uh, range of motion, particularly an internal rotation of that hip, and, and have a reasonably you know, a positive FIDIR almost. Uh, what we know is that the FIDIR test is really sensitive for hip joint, but it's not very specific. So it's often, it's, it's often positive. So just summarise that important point that in the hip you can rule things out, but ruling in isn't so easy. It's still part of something else. Yeah, so uh, the, the acronym about sensitivity and specificity, so the snout, the sensitivity out and specificity in spin is a really useful way to think about it. So in, in sensitivity, if you have a problem with your hip joint, then you would expect this test to be positive. However, the specificity, uh, we're thinking that is there other things or are there other things that could possibly give you a positive finding in this test, not just the hip joint. Um, and so the answer to that is yes with, with the FIDIR test in the hip. So it may be soft, some soft tissue irritation on the anterior part of the hip. It, it might be something around the symphysis. It might actually even just be something in the psoas as well that, that could be causing pain during that movement. That isn't the hip joint. Um, but the key thing to, th to think then that if that test is not positive, it's highly unlikely that, that the hip is the source of the pain. So then pretend I'm the patient and tell me how you explain your findings so far. Yeah, so um, I think of this guy in particular who had a who had a limited um, hip internal rotation and a reduced range of motion, but that it, it wasn't particularly painful. It was perhaps uncomfortable. It led me to believe that I was pretty comfortable, therefore that it wasn't the hip. So the nice thing that I, I communicated to him as when I said, your hip joint feels stiff, but I don't think that's the source of your pain. Uh, as we, we looked and said, well, well it, it's really important, I think, to reproduce their pain. So the athlete is able to say, yes, that's it. Uh, and uh, in doing so, both by palpation and by active movements, can help us then to be more confident that you know the index of suspicion is that this is probably what it is. So I think explaining the the factors that could be involved and looking at the adductor and saying, yeah, this is something that this that this is the source of the pain, but there's also some involvement elsewhere uh, around the symphysis, uh, uh, which uh, I think as we we communicate that to our, to the patients or our athletes, then I think that that's really uh, important. That we talk them through what we're doing and why we're doing it to provide the context so they can interpret uh, things appropriately because sometimes uh, they, they have all of these things and it's painful and they don't know whether that's significant or not significant. So talk the patient through your physical exam really almost like being in an exam ourselves and talking through it to an examiner but explaining yeah. to the patient what it means. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about treatment Phil. Yeah. I think I think a lot of uh, pain in, in the hip and groin region, particularly the the groin, is the adductor, the symphysis. I like to think uh, underpinning it, it's it's to do with force transfer or force production. So you know, can you effectively and efficiently produce force through that 
hip region? Uh, and can you do so in a way that is consistent with simple biomechanics? Um, so we know that in movement, we want to move from a proximal to distal pattern in, in actives, activities like kicking or, or running. So the pelvis moves first, followed by the, the shank, or, or sorry, by the thigh rather, then the shank and then the foot. And so we see this patterning of movement. Uh, and so one of the things is if, if you can't do that effectively, so you can't generate that force or effectively and efficiently, then you will tend to try to muscle it in the term uh, the term you would use, or perhaps recruit muscles at not their optimum part of their length tension curve, so at the, at the wrong length, so not mid-range. As a consequence, then that tends to overstress those tissues. So you, you look at, is, are the tissues healthy and can they transfer the load? Uh, but actually, is the sequencing and recruitment of the movement effective so that it can generate that force? And so that, if you like, is the starting point to restore that for our intervention. And tell us how you did that in this case. Yeah, so in this case, we, we obviously had a, an unhealthy, angry tissue. So we had to think about how can we uh, re resolve or settle down that uh, irritated tissue. Uh, and we know that you know, various interventions like hands-on, so in this case, uh, do a you know, hands-on sort of soft tissue manipulation to help uh, facilitate some of the, perhaps the fascial glide or the fascial planes within the, around the hip and the adductors, but, but also to try and break some of that painful inhibition just in, and, and to get a neurophysiological effect in the short term to then facilitate the ability to move effectively. So it's really important, I think, to highlight the fact that the manual therapy is not the end in itself, but is to facilitate more effective loading and that is the loading and the application of some isometrics in the first instance and then working the adductor through range as a synergist in the first instance that we can then get appropriate recruitment through range which the manual therapy has facilitated rather than the manual therapy being the treatment of, and, and I think then using the basis of what we know around what happens in other muscle tendon units and the response of the tissue to load effectively so isometrics being really powerful analgesic effect we know for Achilles tendon I think the same holds true in other parts of the body uh, also then getting the appropriate recruitment to break this if you like protective spasm uh, there that, that they allow the muscle to let go and, and to uh, recruit effectively and efficiently throughout range so trying to normalize muscle tone and muscle function is one of the first uh, activities that, that I try to get people to do within the, the uh, for adductor pathology particularly for a young physio to prescribe these exercises, the first question is, do you supervise them in the clinic or do you give them stuff to do at home? And which ones do you prescribe, Phil? Yeah, so in the first instance, for, for specific muscle tendon loading, uh, I, I think the important considerations and the advice that I would take, give to, to physios would be what is the position of the, the muscle when you're loading it? So is it as inner, middle or outer range? I tend to then work more in the mid to inner range in the first instance, so there's, there's less of a tensile load. Uh, in a position where you can get effective, easy recruitment, so often crook line is a, is a useful position for that. But also one thing that I think is often overlooked uh, just as we would consider our scapular position when doing shoulder recruitment exercises. So considering pelvic position when doing hip exercises is really important. So often I see these guys, particularly this footballer I'm thinking about, um, was excessively anteriorly tilted. Uh, and we might have uh, thought that he had tight hip flexors, but actually I think it was more a functional position that he was in. So 
getting him able to posteriorly tilt his pelvis and crook line and then do an isometric contraction of his adductors. So we're putting the adductors in a slightly longer length than they would have been in anterior tilt, but it's still mid-range, so it's safe. It's, they're strong, it's easy to recruit, and to a level where we're getting appropriate recruitment, but not feeding into that pain cycle again. So pain-free, stable position, good pelvic position, uh, and doing an isometric hold in the, is, is sort of the basic first-off exercise, if you like. And then moving on to isotonic, or what happens from there? Yeah, then uh, what what you often find with a lot of these guys are quite inhibited. We know there's some research that shows in uh, muscles that are around the shoulder, uh, not so much perhaps for the hip, but we take the principles uh, that muscles that are often inhibited as an agonist or as a prime mover, they aren't inhibited when you recruit them as a synergist. So I tend to then work in that crook line position, start bringing in hip flexion, uh, movement in line uh, and perhaps even some bridging which would then move it from a flex to an extended position uh, with a slight abduction stress so they're recruiting their adductors and so moving through that position you find the adductors are working as a synergist to that hip flexion extension rather than an agonist and it tends to get a better recruitment and can normalize some of that recruitment in the early stages so it's very much early stage type activity. And is this without any weight yet or with a band or which equipment do you use once you try to increase the load? Tell us about the progression. Yeah, so in the first instance to apply the load, I would use just simple band, crook line with a band around the knee, pulling outwards towards abduction to uh, recruit the adductors uh, and then working through hip flexion extension or up into a, a bridge, but all the time cueing the patterning of that movement coming from the pelvis first in the the thigh and, and the rest of the limb so that we're getting that proximal to distal sequencing in from the get-go. What happens next? Yeah, so the, the, if you like in the first instance, that, that's just about loading tissue. Remember, we haven't dealt with the, the biomechanics or the quality of movement or the force generation across the, the entire kinetic chain. So I think spending a lot of time, we often see uh, restrictions through the tension arc. Uh, and some recent work just published uh, uh, a few weeks ago by uh, guys from Holland, uh, uh, Igor Takro, Blanghout and, and uh, Adam, Adam Weir uh, involved there as well, looking at a more functional position to challenge that wind up. So where the trunk rotates one direction, the pelvis goes the other direction and then winding that hip up into a position that reflects the cocking phase of a kicking motion. So starting to try and restore and look for are there links in that kinetic chain that appear to be blocked or not moving effectively. So starting to restore that whole body mobility and the integration of the hip movement within the entire kinetic chain rather than just focusing on what's happening at the hip. And how do you do that? What do you tell the patient? What, what's the listener trying to visualise when you're doing this? Yeah, so the the the. the Passive treatment techniques that we use, the person lies on sideline with their hips um, flexed to 90 degrees, hips and knees to 90 degrees. They then rotate their upper trunk so that their chest is down on the bed. And then the upper leg you take into an extended position and then add either an adduction, abduction, internal rotation or external rotation direction depending on which movement you want to work on. Uh, and that can be a really useful test of range of motion, but it's also a useful intervention to try and improve mobility like an active uh, stretch if you like or an active release type position. Uh, then when we move up into more dependent standing positions really important. So standing up the affected leg perhaps supported on some sort of a sling like a TRX or a red cord type uh, thing and moving back into that same kicking motion 
position whilst adding some load through that posterior uh, foot so that we're starting to load up through that um, uh, tension arc but again the key thing is the cueing of the movement so the key things that I always say is how you can elongate your trunk so keep your chest high stay tall can you rotate your trunk around that nice elongated axis in the opposite direction away from the hip so you get the trunk decoupling from the pelvis then also can you posteriorly tilt that pelvis to open up the front of that hip joint that perhaps is getting a little bit impinged by some of those sort of more soft tissue things rather than a frank you know um, FII or, or calm deformity and, and so pelvic position and then working on that ability to lengthen and to come in and out of that position whilst maintaining the appropriate trunk pelvic and hip position and you're showing me the nice hip extension with your hands here that the listener can't see but uh, I think we get that picture very clearly and what happens next? Then we, we want to continue to progressively load the tissue so adding load and I think we need to be strong um, but uh, we, we want to move from that isometric uh, synergistic type movement towards perhaps some concentric and then ultimately as is the case with vast majority of muscle tendon injuries we, we want to move towards an eccentric bias so starting off in that instance then of working through range with uh, simple exercises like uh, hip, hip adduction uh, using a band what one of the exercises I see people use a lot in the early stages but I actually think is higher low than we we sometimes realize is, is a standing hip adduction with a band uh, or a cable around their ankle it's a very long lever uh, it's working and it puts a reasonable amount of strain it requires a, a, a good bit of um, symphysial and, and pelvic stability in order to have a solid base to drive that force effectively uh, and so I actually don't like to use that exercise in the early stages I think of it more of a late stage so I would certainly suggest that that's a, a tip that people would consider what I would however do would do what I call an adductor bridge other people recently have called it a Copenhagen um, adductor test but you know it's we, we know that it's been around for a, for a little while um, but using that first of all in a short lever so that people are, are working uh, through range and I think a principle what we think of we think of depth and width of of, of hip um, ab abduction so to progress you start off short short depth uh, and short width of feet uh, the feet being apart then as you progress you go deeper and take your feet further apart so greater degrees of abduction through greater ranges of motion uh, but as we start to load up through range and, and some of those type of exercises and if someone doesn't have a mental picture of this bridge exercise it's the patient lying on the side yeah so with that one we can start with the patient lies on their side with their affected side uppermost then uh, what I would normally do would be place the inside of the thigh on either a, a, a it could be a chair or a, a step a, a simple step and then they lift their uh, lower leg and their hips up off the floor using the activation of the upper the adductors of the upper leg so then this is all done in the clinic what sort of things does a patient do at home during these programs Phil? yeah so they, they can do that one at home once we're happy with their quality of movement uh, I think also what we do is is work through a lot of the work in line the, the mat type work so line working on in, in getting facilitating that posterior tilt of the pelvis to open up the front of the hips and then being able to extend the hip without having excessive extension of the lumbar spine because we often see restriction in that hip extension which then uh, 
tends to tip the pelvis forward into a greater anterior tilt. So doing things like a single leg bridge in a posteriorly tilted position through range is really quite important. Then I tend to do work almost like a, the, it's a little bit like the running man exercise that would have been in, in other programs previously or the cross country skier type exercise. So a single leg squat, but reflecting more the drive phase of a sprint. So starting down in a low uh, single leg squat position and then using the arms to drive up and to posteriorly tilt to drive the hip through into 90 degrees flexion and really concentrating on maintaining that upright spine and that connection between the trunk and the, the lower limb so that you're getting that, you're facilitating that decoupling. The other thing we do at home as well is whilst people may not have a TRX or some sling suspension to work with, what I would ask them to do however is to put their foot on top of something like a Swiss ball which is very common if they don't have one of those just to rest it on a chair and then to work in facilitating that opening up into hip flexion, uh, hip extension and back to flexion again whilst associating uh, the, the trunk opening up of the trunk and in the same movement at the same time. So bringing to a close thing about our clinicians who are running out of time with their patients and things, what else do they need to know to bring this one to a close? Yeah, I think once you've established good strength and tissue capacity and you can re-establish good movement quality that integrates the entire kinetic chain, you've got to be able then to execute that and integrate it into the, the, the sport-specific skill. So restoring that movement and those same cues when sprinting, changing direction and, and kicking. Uh, and so that, that ability to do that in a very progressive manner where you gradually increase the difficulty and the complexity of that task. The important thing then is that sport, football, is a very unpredictable sport. So the ability to respond unpredictable in an unpredictable environment and that uh, uh, variability and adaptability is critical. So we, we, unless we can retrain people to respond to unpredictable things happening, then we've never really prepared them to go back to sport. Uh, ask them to take a ball around some cones to beat a, 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 a member of the opposition uh, and to kick a specific target. Or we may put in a different cue part of the way through where they have to change direction very quickly. So that might be an auditory cue, like me calling left or right, a visual cue, like pointing one direction or another, or responding to a, a, a ball being tossed in a particular position. But being able to respond effectively to those things happening in your surrounding environment but to do it in a very progressive manner and uh, you know we put together a model of myself and uh, Sam Blanchard a, a few years ago where uh, it was about how you might build the progressions of this rehabilitation where you change one component and once they have autom skill automation smooth movement of that then you can add another component in and how you do that in a logical effective manner. And what I liked about that model Phil is that you lowered the volume of the thing that the person was used to doing when you were introducing the new activities and I think that's probably worth mentioning. So uh, let's say for example in our football, a footballer we've been working on a change of direction so he's able to do that really well so he can run to a cone, step off his right foot, change direction and he does that without a problem. Now if we introduce for example a football uh, and he is now taking a ball and now has to change direction, what we will do is to make the nature of that run-up before the change of direction quite different. So we'll do it at a slower speed over a shorter duration. So we pull the load back there. So the focus is on the ability to control the ball and change direction rather than try to change direction and control the ball, which could potentially start to overload some of those structures if not executed perfectly. 
Thanks a ton, Phil. That's a lot of really helpful tips. Really appreciate that. So before we let you go, I know you're excited about the conference in Belfast in 2017, and it comes around faster than people think, and I'm looking forward to it as well. So what do you want to tell the BJSM listener? Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's going to be a fantastic event where we're, the theme of which is optimal loading in sport. And we want to consider how the different tissues respond to load. So how can we most effectively load muscle? How does tendon respond to load? Bone, even how the nervous system can respond to load effectively. And, and take from not just the basic science and some of the clinical research, but we're going to really use experts in the field to use clinical pearls to say, what does this mean for me in my everyday practice? So we're going to, if you like, join that line right from the, the basic science of how the tissues work right through to the clinical field. And we've some great speakers uh, involved. We've got Tim Gabbett has, has agreed to come as a, uh, a keynote to look how we might effectively monitor that load and the effects on different systems. We have Rod Whiteley from Qatar who, who's going to, uh, you know, again, challenge some of our conceptions about how things work. Uh, with Mario Bazzini, uh, very well known for the, from, from the Swiss group, as well and among a whole host of others and we've also got some of the the top UK physios who are working with some of our top football teams and rugby teams from and some of our top Olympians working to show this is how it works in real practice. Fantastic Phil and uh, you're being very humble there because you've got a terrific um, lot of value to offer yourself as the lead from the Team GB physiotherapy and uh, it's great to have you chairing that meeting and uh, running workshops as well so i know it's going to be very practical so thanks a lot for being on this podcast today okay thank you it's been a pleasure and you can follow bjsm on twitter facebook and we have over 250 podcasts for you to check and the app is a great way to do that so thanks for listening today and i do hope you get a chance to have an active day